You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hi, I'm Miriam Kelly, curator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. It's my pleasure to welcome you to ACCA's 2021 lecture series, Experimental Institutionalism, Contemporary Art and Curatorial Ecologies. As always, I would like to start by acknowledging the people of the Kulin Nations as custodians of the land on which ACCA is located. I extend my respects to elders past, present and future and to all First Nations people tuning into this program. After the richness of our contemporary exhibition history series, which is now available on podcast and video at acca.melbourne, we conceived of the 2021 annual lecture series to pose these broad questions. Where are we now and what's next? Across seven different topics, this lecture series delves into an array of contemporary practices and projects. Artists, curators, writers, museum workers, lawyers, and educators discuss their work as it intersects with wider economic, technological, environmental, and political contexts in our radically changing times. Bringing together international and Australian speakers in each session, we also wanted to encourage global dialogues at a time of limited movement. In this series, we hear how similarities and alliances can be drawn across borders and how we can work and learn differently in response to the specificities of locality, place, culture, and community. For the fifth dialogue in our series titled Electronic, Modeling the Digital Present and Tools for the Future, I'm thrilled to be joined by two immensely creative and inspiring individuals, Seb Chan, who joins me from Melbourne, and Sahedra Hell, who's speaking with us from Mumbai. Seb Chan is Chief Experience Officer at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, ACME. Seb is responsible for a holistic multi-channel visitor-centred design strategy for ACME and we'll hear today about some of the hybrid initiatives that have been integrated into the museum experience following ACME's reopening of this year. Prior to ACME, Seb was Director of Digital and Emerging Media at Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York. There he also led the museum's digital renewal and its transformation into an interactive playful new museum for which he and his team won multiple awards. Sahaj Rahel's installations, films, performances, artificial intelligence works and games draw upon sources ranging from mythology to science fiction. Sahaj will speak to the cycles of past and present as they relate to myth, belief and information technology and as they intersect with the current political landscape in India. Sahaj has presented work in major solo and group projects internationally over the past decade, including recently as part of the 2020 Transmedial Festival, the 2019 Liverpool Biennial, and here with us at ACCA also in 2019. Sahaj is also the recipient of the Jungay Academy's 2020 Human Machine Fellowship and the 2020-2021 Digital Earth Fellowship. Seb, Sahaj, thank you so much for joining me. I'll hand over to you to speak further about the work that each of you do in navigating the digital present and considering our possible futures. So I'd also like, like kind of to kind of begin by, by, by acknowledging the, the, the kind of traditional owners of the land on, on kind of which I create, live and work, the um, sort of Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, pay my respects to their elder, elders, past to past, past present. I'd also like to acknowledge that the work that I'm speaking about now is actually work in many teams and colleagues that I've worked, worked with across many museums and also um, design firms and con, um, consultants and more. 
this is always collaborative work. So I'm going to talk today um, about really this sort of career kind of journey of the last uh, last kind of 20 years and the tensions that te technology has brought to the museum space, the, the tensions between user and artist, museum and gallery, and this sort of change, this shift of the use of te technology as a democratic and social change tool to one that is much, much more, more um, complicated now. Um, I start with a, a series of a series of six 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 premises. The fir first 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 one of these is the is the museum now in 2021 or the 2020s is now a platform for communities, creators, and artists. And I think this begs the the question: if if um, if kind of the museum is a platform, the big quest question is who it is a platform platform for. Premise two is the is that of course the um, the museum and gallery was never a sort of neutral frame, neither was the sense of the white 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 cube gallery, um, and the people need uh, to spend extended time with creative works in order to be affected by them. I think that's one of the really interesting things in tech technology, uh, technology, and certainly one of the things that my Work has tried tried to really push on is this sense of how how kind of might tech technologies allow uh, visitors or the communities that um, museums and galleries serve to 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 spend more time with uh, creative um, with the creative works. Premise four is that networked digital tech technologies have had and continually to have pervasive effects on, um, on our um, communities. And that is um, something that I think we've become super, super, um, super aware of in the last five, five, five years. And thus, these same tech technologies are, do, do tra transform the museum and also the type and nature of creative kind of works created by artists and artists and other artists and makers. And if kind of the museum, of course, in premise six doesn't adapt, com um, communities can kind of now create their own museum kind of like structures to store and to um, keep um, mem you know, memories and to share them with others. So in the first kind of decade of this uh, century, most of kind of my work was spent um, on opening up collections, making um, social his 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 histories accessible to, to, com to various, com various communities and also contestable. And this is when I uh, was working at the Powerhouse Museum. And, and, and this wasn't just, just about making these fresh, freshly digitized collections available on kind of the web, but actually, Using uh, that as a way for com for communities to interact with and to almost reclaim these collections that had been collected by um, the museum. So here in two thousand and five, um, this is a very early version of the then powerhouse powerhouse museums collection website. This. Um, uh, really, uh, when uh, this launched, it and the Brooklyn and this and the Brooklyn Brooklyn Museum's uh, collection on um, the web were the two um, uh, collection websites around um, the world that inspired many other 
muse, you know, museums to think, 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 think about the way they presented collections. So this was a museum collection website that had tag, 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 tagging, semantic analysis, you know, related works, lots of images, all of those sorts of things. And interestingly, this uh, generated a huge amount of community um, uh, feedback. So. Uh, people would look at this website, maybe they'd uh, done a search for something they'd found, found in their shed and they would email the, um, the powerhouse because the powerhouse had the only record for that, that sort of thing on uh, the web at that uh, time. So that was kind of exciting. Um, and then uh, towards the end of that uh, decade, um, augmented reality started to emerge with the arrival of the smart smartphone and um, the iPhone 3G, GS, I think was the first, first in Australia. And by two, 2009, we were working with um, some tools in a, a, in, um, um, on a platform called Layar and working with a local Sydney firm called Mob, Mob Labs to create this app that allowed um, museum uh, users to browse the museum's collection of historic photographs of Sydney by going to the locations where those photographs had 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 been taken. So in a way, returning those images from from the past to their locations in kind of the present. Now that doesn't seem so amazing now, but back in two thousand and eight nine, that felt um, felt like something uh, magical. Um, in 2011, I moved to kind of New York to work for the Smithsonian, the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. They were going, th going through a major redevelopment. And this was a period where, um, you know, we were think think thinking a lot about the way the smartphone had changed the way people had begun to visit you know, museums. So this, this, this was the Nas National Museum of Design in America. Um, so it had a lot of uh, porcelain ceramics, it had post posters, it had products. It had this very, very large collection, but a, but a collection that even in a redeveloped building, on, only a fraction of which could ever be put out on a public show. And there um, was a sense that we, 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 we knew that by um, the time this big redevelopment pro project had finished, I, um, I had arrived and the museum had just closed. And the museum was planned to be closed for a couple of kind of years. Um, that by kind of the time the museum's collection, um, the, you know, the museum rebuild had been done, the museum's collection would all or should have all been but being kind of digitized. So building a, a new collection website for the, um, um, the museum. And then this provocation of if everything had uh, been uh, digitized and on the museum's website, how could, might we design the building experience for country, for country visitors? How might that change? And so, um, you know, what the smart, smartphone had done, have done, of course, is bring user experience and the sense of control of the user to the fore. So the sense of museums started to open up their ability for visitors to take photographs within their galleries. A couple of years previous, of course, people would still be 
stopped by by kind of security guards for taking the photographs in exhibitions. That seems ridiculous now, but that certainly was a thing in the early 2000s. But by you know, 20, you know, 2010, 2011, 20, you know, 2012, most, most museums were allowing that. Anyway, so how uh, might we begin to change the way, way we designed exhibition spaces and experiences to lean into this sense of uh, these collection records being available on the website and how as a result of that might sort of we uh, bring friction in kind of to the visiting experience of a museum to slow slow people down to really play up the the sense of being present physically with with um, uh, things from a museum's collection, works of art, works works of kind of design and then also use the sense that those uh, works were also digitized and then allow visitors to go home and look at them different, differently later on. So we made with a, um, a, with a couple of designed uh, firms this uh, thing or a magic wand. And it was really based on this sort of sense of a, a magic kind of library card, which would allow you to move through the museum and collect works of kind of design to look at later on. Um, so this is an so with working uh, with a local firm in uh, New York at the time, local projects, uh, local projects came up with this idea in 2012, and this is from their their original pitch, their um, their original pitch uh, deck to the museum was this sort of sense of could could we give visitors to the design museum a pen, and that pen would then allow visitors to become designers and also take home things from the collection with, with them. Of course, building a physical product, we worked with a firm in Spain and many other uh, product kind of designers to build a physical device. So this was, this really brought a lot of challenges around building a physical product at a time when these, you know, Batteries, cleanliness. How 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 is it better than a smart 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 smartphone? How actually does it work? How kind of do visitors realize what kind of to do? All of that sort of thing became really uh, key issues for us. And this is it running in 2015. So this is um, the Cooper Hewitt experience. Then um, you would move through the galleries with with this one, collecting things, bring them back to big in, big interactive tables, explore them in more detail, be a, be able to create and draw your own designs, and then take home three D models of kind of those the, those kind of designs at that uh, time to perhaps print on your school or university's three you know three D print three uh, D printer, which was pretty cool. Um, similarly, the, the, the Cooper Hewitt had this amazing collection of historic wall, wallpapers and, you know, wallpapers are diff uh, difficult things to show in you know, museums because museums collect them as swatches or little strips. And of course, seeing them requires you to see um, them in a room. So seeing you surrounded by these historic patterns uh, changes your mood in the way a room, a room feels. So being able to use you know, projection to allow people to get a sense of how a wallpaper would feel was really, really critical. And this also allowed, you know, we really lent into the sense of giving visitors the tools to create their own wallpaper designs. And that became immensely pop, you know, popular. And again, really lent into that sense of um, becoming a kind of designer. 
So the wallpaper room, uh, super exciting and super fun and super also photogenic. So that sort of sense of people coming to the physical space of the, of the museum to use digital tools to put themselves and their own create, creativity in the kind of to the museum. Um, in uh, the first year of operation, about four, four, four million things throughout the, the, the museum were collected and you know, nearly 30% went back to the museum's website, logged in and looked, 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 looked at what they'd collected or made. Um, but most, import, port, most import, importantly, the type of person, the age of person who came to that um, museum on the Upper East kind of side of New York radically changed. Uh, the age of uh, vis visitors halved. And that I think was really important, you know, putting the sort of sense of a design museum back in, back in kind of the hands of the next sort of generation of creative pra practitioners was super important. Um, so here in Melbourne at the Nas National Museum of Screen Culture, a similar issue, you know, in many ways, you know, being a museum that needs to display, collect and preserve new types of art and media. And these are often also now digital works. So this um, uh, work on the top, the top kind of left, Daniel Crooks, uh, you know, an, an amazing work, uh, Phantom, uh, Phantom Country to Bride, uh, two screen productions, Andy Begg's work on the top right, which uses, um, which generates different sequences for a, a documentary about Juanita Nielsen in uh, a, a kind of solved crime case in uh, Sydney in the 1970s. Terranolius, Soda Jerk's uh, classic mashup kind of work, which uses rotoscoping to create a collage of um, many, many different Australian films. And the bottom, and uh, the work on the bottom kind of right, virtual reality work, which is in fact a virtual reality preservation of a virtual reality, well, well of a tech technologically driven theatre production. Um, so in the case of this, this museum, now the currency we, we are working in is of course time, because the things we are, we are about take time to watch or play in the case of video games and the time of experience. And the museum's physical site is a place where you would never have time to watch everything. So very early on in the, re in the redesign, uh, we're working with a, a New Zealand-based designer, uh, David, Hebbles, uh, David Hebblethwaite, um, at a firm called Art of, Art, of, um, Art of Facts. There was this real notion of building on the work done in New, in, uh, New York with uh, the pen, the sense in, in terms of a museum of media, the sense that you could collect and take home the films, TV and video games was really obvious and super, super important. And the value of the museum, as you can see here in the te technology drawings of a, vis um, of a visitor journey, perhaps was to point out the connections bet between things. You can see perhaps uh, on, the, on the left here, um, on the wall, someone is searching and browsing all of the scenes related to cats. And this was, of course, in 2016, the sort of sense of uh, using computer vision and AI to pull out sequences from the um, museum's archival collections to find automated connections between works was super in 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 interesting. Um, of course, working with a US firm in the exhibition design, second, you know, second kind of story, here's one of their must, you know, master plan pieces where they are explicitly drawing out the sense of 
visitors in a uh, visitor journey throughout um, this future, future museum at that time, explicitly drawing out the amount of time spent on each kind of floor and the way people might move between floors and spend time with different uh, types of experiences in different places within the physicality of um, the institution itself. Um, that, of course, the lens uh, evolved and it evolved from a single use, uh, but returnable, a bit like the pen that you would use it, borrow it, use it, give it back in to working um, with Swinburne's Centre for Design Innovation, we turned that into a recyclable tool. So the lens, of, lens evolves and it was this sort of, the lens was really nice because it also had this um, meta metaphor of a lens, a, a lens allowing you to focus and see, see things in a new way. So it had that sort of nice snappy um, metaphor there. The lens uh, physically was then redesigned uh, based on these phenakiscopes, these early uh, 19th century toys that really the precursor to the animated, uh, to, the anim to the animated GIF. Um, and here you can see uh, another early prototype uh, from, second, from Second Cut Story of these being um, see-through, transparent things. That's not how they turned, 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 turned out in uh, the end with physical prototyping and this sort of uh, desired fiction approach of imagining different possible futures, uh, we ended up with uh, the lens as it is today, which is like this. So I think what's interesting about where the lens um, uh, finished up was this sort of sense of the lens being used as a, phys as a physical device within uh, the museum to move kind of through the physical space of, 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 of kind of the museum as you build up a collection. And that collection in fact becomes the start point rather than the end, end point of your exploring of a, uni of, of a universe of content. Um, so that last sequence of that video, um, the, uh, the uh, visitors at the end of the uh, uh, permanent exhibition or the free exhibition um, come, 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 come to a series of inter interactive tables where they connect their lens and their uh, lens then draws out connections that our curators have, 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 um, um, have made to other films, TV and video games that they may want to go home and watch. So not, on, not only do you get the things that um, uh, you collected, but the things you have collected are also then connected by humans, not AI, to other things the museum is making recommendations for. And what's, what's interesting in the, in the interface for that experience, which is in the gallery, is that those recommendations are with little stories of why X is connected to 
Y with a named curator beneath each. So you, you, you know who is recommending what, um, what kind of to you and why. So that sort of trans transparency of, cur of, of curation, I think does open up this contestability for the museum, the sort of sense that the um, museum's recommendations are then named and contestable, which is which for me was uh, very 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 important from a, a stand a stand a standpoint of the politics of the of curation and the politics of the museum experience being uh, foregrounded. Of course, you then go home. Uh, you log on and you keep watching and watching and playing. So the sense of the museum's visit is then extended not only from the time you spend within the museum, but also to the home itself. Now, this is done pseudo anonymously. Um, so we're not we're trying to reduce as much as as much as possible in this particular age of. Uh, you know, so you know, sort of, um, you know, so um, surveillance capitalism. We don't want to feed feed a beast here. Um, your information and data is safe and pseudo anonymized, um, but we still have this challenge around the success being me measured in quantified ways. So we can say in you know two you know two point one million things have been collected by our visitors, which 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 is this very significant. Vol, vol, volume of things, um, and you know we know that you know a, a fifth of a fifth of visitors log on and look at what they've seen. That's really great. We're really pleased by that. But I think the challenge is this sort of sense of how do you um, how kind of do you resist the quantification of success here? That these figures are very 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 impressive or look impressive. But it's really the qualitative stories, the interviews we do with, uh, with kind of visitors, the emails we get or the social media posts that we get of visitors who said, oh, I got recommended this because I collected that and I went home and watched, watched, watched it and I really enjoyed it. Or, or I never thought I'd be interested or I'd seek the relationship between this and that, that, that really starts, um, starts to draw out the, the kind of value there. But I think you know this is also about creating these moments where um, the museum is the beginning of further discussions about screen culture. Screen culture. It, it sort of is, as I've said in the past, the you know, museum is a curiosity machine. That it's a machine that's generating more curious people, more more curious citizens, um, and that's that's um, that's probably a really good uh, place to stop. So thanks heaps. Thank you uh, to uh, Miriam and also Seb uh, for uh, inviting me to this conversation. And Seb, it was uh, really uh, interesting to uh, see how your approach to uh, sort of merge, moving between all these sort of timelines and worlds is like uh, kind of coming together, you know. And uh, just one really exciting thing that I felt in your approach was, uh, you know, you've got uh, this idea of. Uh, well, I mean, so this is my favorite sort of aspect of going to a museum is, uh, you know, encountering things by chance, by, uh, you know, this kind of, you enter this unknown space where you don't know uh, what you'll find. And uh, um, and that that to me, I mean, you know, like kind of somehow overrides that, that or doesn't override, like, I mean, it sits with uh, 
you know museums uh, and their history and like the way these objects are codified and things like that but at the same time you end up like you know uh, going into a museum and still finding things that uh, uh, you know are new or you know you haven't kind of encountered before and i feel like you know the lens uh, project that you presented kind of uh, carries that in a way like you know this is uh, and something really uh, uh, something that i identify with like in your approach was uh, this resistance to uh, quantifying uh, experience you know uh, and instead letting the multitude to sort of flow through both of the museum space and the uh, the viewer uh, that that is i think there's a lot uh, in that unsaid in those two unsaid kind of spaces that uh, uh, you know that's that's a space of poetry and it's it's uh, really refreshing and like beautiful to see you uh, kind of you know bring that into uh, your approach to sort of museum making um so uh, with that and like you know i mean i I'd, I'd, uh, I'd like to just kind of give you a sense of like what i do so uh, i uh, you know I'm, i'm a artist i live in mumbai and uh, i create uh, sculptures objects toys uh, from this kind of alternate civilization that sort of unfolding into our uh, universe and uh, what's happening is that uh, these objects kind of take their shape uh, from things that i find by chance you know so it's almost like this kind of little museum journey that i'm doing in in across bombay uh, and bombay is kind of a museum in a way you know it's it's this museum as bricolage where it's kind of reformulating itself constantly every night and uh, it doesn't you never know what it will throw at you um so that that's kind of been my uh, sort of approach in creating this kind of fictional world of like you know creatures and shamans and ghosts and uh, uh you know and then they 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 take the shape of like performances and installations and um now uh, my my uh, you know i was thinking what if these creatures that i'm creating what if they can actively play a role in uh, you know sort of shaping the world that's kind of coming uh, coming together in in somewhere uh, and that's what kind of drove me, drove me to working with ai you know and uh, the interesting thing about ai is this new technology is that like you know it kind of occupies the space between being uh, a tool and uh, you know being a, a kind of potential collaborator in a way as well and it's almost sort of between those two spaces like you know uh, where uh, and i think that that kind of field that it opens up in being these two things at the same time um it kind of like allows for uh, almost this you know the, the multitude of sort of non human intelligence and like you know the history of non human intelligences that like have kind of you know uh walked with us through history to sort of enter into that conversation of you know art making uh so that that's kind of what drew me to ai and uh uh just a little disclaimer i don't work with like any kind of sophisticated sort of ai program i work with uh just video game ai you know so uh characters or creatures that are driven by that that you have in video games like uh uh you know non player characters so that's the that's the kind of like basic level sort of scripts that i work with and uh, that there's no they're not machine learning or anything like that um now uh, but they are capable of some fun things uh so the way i work is like you know i create these kind of uh large sort of creatures again <laughs> uh, that kind of look like my analog or real life meat space uh, sculptures 
uh, and uh, you know sort of attach uh, these scripts to each of their limbs and uh, like their virtual limbs and uh, th- th- these limbs then kind of have essentially uh, these sort of protean minds of them their own right and uh, they produce motion um through chaos through like kind of just colliding against each other in a way like you know I mean, figuratively speaking uh right now uh these limbs are all, these scripts are also capable of listening so what happens here is that like uh you know the viewer and any noise or sound or music that we make would kind of interrupt the motion and change the way that the creatures sort of interact within these virtual kind of biomes that they, that they inhabit um and one of the ideas that was kind of like you know also draw, driving uh this this approach to uh to non-human intelligence was uh and to this idea of the post-human was uh how would we speak to the future you know how would we speak to that which comes after us or um and and that's kind of like the dialogue essentially that that's being orchestrated between you know the ai programs on one side and uh and you know human beings who are sort of encountering them uh the program that i showed at acca uh in uh in the before times before the pandemic uh <laughs> was uh called antral uh and it's this sentient musical instrument that uh produces uh music um or this procedurally kind of modulating drone that uh that changes in response to uh external kind of you know audio feedback um right so now uh you know i was sort of building these creatures and then uh i somehow kind of encountered this um this ancestor in a way to uh to these creatures uh in uh, you know in this guy called uh, uh king bhojadev who was a uh, we'll call him the maharaja of machines uh, so bhojadev was a uh, like you know a king during the paramara dynasty in india uh and uh, he was you know sort of this philosopher king and he he sort of uh, put together this tome on uh, you know sort of deliberating on uh, everything from like painting sculpture uh, war strategies uh, you know very kind of existential sort of questions uh, and it was sort of put together in this book called the uh, samarangana sutradhara and uh, now this is one very interesting part of the uh, of the book called uh, the yantra vidhanam so it's about um, i think there's about um, there's a good chunk of like uh, verses in the book that are titled under the yantra vidhanam and uh, the yantra vidhanam specifically looks at machines uh, now the word yantra means um, is is machine or tool you know in that sense and or instrument uh and it comes from yam uh the root word is yam uh and it's sort of comparable to uh you know the the sort of root word of cybernetics uh kerberos uh you know the greek origin uh so yam is to control and then you get yantra now uh what bhojadev does is like he kind of makes a list of uh these uh perfect yantras like you know what would be a good yantra like what are the virtues of a good yantra and uh you know they they sort of go from uh, durability and uh, you know uh, freedom from tightness freedom from looseness uh, he also says inscrutability <laughs> and uh, one really kind of fascinating uh, idea that he sort of applies onto them is uh, 
an ability to work in an atmosphere of uncertainty right um this caught my eye and uh, the second uh, way in which he sort of like you know kind of categorizes them is that uh, there are machines or yantra that are uh, you know that require external propulsion uh, there are uh, machines that are propelled by hidden mechanisms and uh, then there are machines that are uh, self propelling right okay now uh, you take these self propelling machines on one side and uh, you take the ability to act under conditions of uncertainty on the other and uh, essentially what you have is a non human sentient organisms right like that are capable of driving themselves and uh, responding to the chaos that surrounds them uh this was quite fascinating because like you know uh, presently especially the way we see uh, like how we imagine ai you know especially in like the, the popular imagination of artificial intelligence is this uh efficiency uh, enhancing you know tool uh in google maps or things like that you know it'll take you it'll give you the perfect journey you know from one place to the other it'll like you know, give you the fastest route or something like that uh in matchmaking apps like tinder uh it'll find you the perfect life you know partner um so there's this that that narrative kind of exists and then like you know when we look at uh ai and governance uh there's this idea of efficiency that like you know if you were just to ha- hand over governance to um you know artificial intelligence programs they would sort of uh fix uh humanity's problems um so there's this idea of efficiency right and um this is something that i feel um is um, you know i mean with that idea of efficiency you have a kind of normativity that is like you know the, that that multitude that is capable of say even encountering objects that it might not have in a museum space uh is kind of collapsed into a very singular kind of uh idea of the human and that those contours of that the human that is being framed in even in that uh in that rhetoric is uh exclusionary right like because um so what i found interesting in say bhojadev's conception or these kind of propositions that he's making was like you know he's kind of actually drawing these machines or or sort of like walking with them towards uh, uncertainty towards contingency you know towards chance um and uh, that that is also like you know i mean just looking at the space that we are in presently we are kind of in essentially this game of chance right like you don't know uh how or because there's this like kind of uh, all encompassing uh, uh you know non human organism that has kind of like sort of uh permeated every aspect of our lives uh so you don't know if you will encounter uh you know the virus uh while you go to the shopping mall or like you know to get your groceries or uh even if you kiss someone uh and uh, so there there's that kind of uh it it's kind of in the air again uh i mean in in more ways than one right um right so if we find ourselves in these spaces of contingency and um and in these games of chance and uh you know that that kind of got me thinking about uh gambling <laughs> uh because you know gamblers are uh, living their lives by chance you know and uh, that that is sort of their coda uh so you know I, now now most gamblers have spoken to are kind of uh, well they kind of boring people uh, because uh, you know they have this sort of unsaid kind of like uh, discipline you know it's very austere in a way 
that uh, they, they um, so serious gamblers, uh, they will tell you that uh, in order to sort of, you know, properly attune yourself to the sort of machinery of chance and luck, uh, you need to kind of exorcise yourself of uh, hope and despair, right? And uh, you cannot sort of allow yourself those to uh, fall to those sort of, you know, uh, or, or allow yourself those emotions. Uh, only then can you kind of attune yourself to, uh, you know, perfectly to chance. And the moment you sort of start believing that the luck that has come your way uh, is, you know, you're deserving of it, then you've lost the game. So uh, it kind of puts you on the, um, on the, uh, on your, uh, like, you know, it puts you on the game board in a really interesting way, I think. Um, another kind of place in which we see uh, chance playing out, especially in, in India right now, uh, on the uh, borders of Delhi is, uh, you know, at the farmers' protest, which has sort of been, uh, you know, it began with the Sikh agitation and then now, now there's farmers from all over the world who've, uh, sorry, all over the country who have um, gathered there and uh, uh, it is actually the uh, largest gathering uh, for uh, for uh, like in human history uh, and uh, what's interesting over here is that uh, the way that uh, the farmers are organizing is kind of driven by this idea in uh, that was actually uh, sort of you know uh, I guess imagined by this uh, Sikh poet uh, called uh, Harinder Singh Mehboob uh, who speaks about uh, this idea of Khalis Kudrat, which is uh, absolute nature. And he says that uh, you have this force of absolute nature that is kind of driving uh, something called Akal Fateh, which is uh, Akal is that which lies outside of time and Fateh is uh, victory, right? Uh, so he says that Khalis Kudrat drives Akal Fateh, drives the untimely victory, uh, which will uh, be encountered uh, when you cannot account for it, you know, when you are cannot prepare yourself for it, uh, and and that's interesting because uh, these forces now lie lie outside of uh, time on a metaphysical level, uh, while on a material level, what you're seeing is that the Indian state is kind of like designing itself very much in in that as time itself, you know. So it is driven by uh, this right wing sort of. Uh, uh, ultra right-wing ideology of Hindutva, which kind of like imagines itself as uh, Sanatan, which is uh, to say it is time itself, you know, it is the kind of order of time. Uh, and, uh, you know, you see this playing out on the uh, on the borders of Delhi as well, because you see uh, concrete blocks and you see these massive kind of cargo containers and literally, like, you know, stacked up like, you know, like a game of Tetris. Uh, and uh, you see Constantina, you know, lacing the horizon and uh, then you have this force of absolute nature that is kind of being driven, uh, that is coming in from outside of time to kind of challenge it. Uh, so th this is the kind of shape of contingencies that we swirl within. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's interesting to say the least. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you. Such inspiring um, and rich conversations. 
Uh, I'm so glad you can't see my desk at the moment is covered in notes and paper. <laughs> um, but I have uh, maybe I just wanted to say um, it's such a, uh, an amazing time to be listening to discussions uh, when so much tech and um, digital development is focused on prediction and efficiency to hear you both talk about um, challenging that in different ways um, in the creative process and in enabling people to encounter time in such different um, and wonderful uh, ways. Um, Seb, I, but, and so as you touched on this too when you were responding to Seb's um, discussion, um, something that jumped out at me immediately when you were talking about um, uh, how exciting it is to see the numbers and the way that people are engaging, um, but how you were looking to kind of resist that. Um, I was really curious, how, how do you measure the qualitative um, or is that something that you, you try not to measure? Is measurement the wrong word to, to kind of consider that? Yeah, I think measurement is the wrong word. I think it's observation and talking with uh, people. I think one of the things that's been, that comes with a, a design approach to this is to try to find ways that, um, uh, that describe the value better um, and to realise that that value will change. I, I think the pre-COVID world, the value of what we were making is very different to the post-COVID world or whatever stage we're in now. Um, but, yeah, the sort of sense that um, uh, evolving with the, with the projects, I think, has been really important and having space to move. Um, but, you know, I guess... Um, it is as you know the database and technology is quantifying and that's really challenging and i think one of the things of working with artists but also um, approaching design and tech from a more humanistic perspective and being aware of those politics is absolutely key and i think that's one of the things when these projects are deployed within museums or designed within museums it's about um not it's, it's about trying to bring friction back into the process. Rather, I think as we've seen in our consumer applications that we do from dating apps to you know, Zoom and other things, every, everything's been about designing the friction out and actually part of what, what, um, what I and people I work, work with try to do is design friction in um, to see what other things come out as a result of that, what energy is created as a result of that. So Hesh, I can see you nodding wildly. I think designing the friction in is such a beautiful way to describe the way that you work. Um, that work that you've presented at Transmedia, I'd love you to talk a little bit about, about that. I think that the, the seamlessness with which you, you bring history and future into one, there's a, there's a line which says something around mystic beliefs, depending on which Shastras or which WhatsApp you're reading. And I think that sense of friction really comes to, pour, to the fore in that work. So yeah, like you know the the, the idea of uh, I actually loved it the way you phrased it, thank you, Mommy. I thought uh, designing with friction in is quite uh, quite a nice um, uh, like way of phrasing uh, phrasing the the approach because you're sort of like uh, essentially um, so the the kind of larger uh, discussion that's kind of playing out like you know especially with like you know planetary computation as well on one side and like you know the fact that we are capable of like. Uh, computing and quantifying uh, every aspect of human life in a certain way is that you are um, uh, you are bound to create limited models uh, and 
this is not to make some kind of like you know uh, apology for uh, you know some kind of vitalistic idea of like you know that there's there's something essentially human or something like that. <coughs> Sorry, I'm not I'm not so interested in like you know kind of reaffirming the human, but I do think that uh, just generally approach uh, you know I mean I see it in like so Bombay is the city of advertising actually like you know it is kind of selling the Indian dream. It is the city of dreams. uh like you know uh with both with bollywood and with advertising you see that uh like you know just playing out on a daily basis on the street on in your cab conversations things like that like you know it's all about creating hype uh and uh, selling this idea uh of you know uh like the american dream i would say is actually still alive in india in a really funny way <laughs> uh <laughs> uh anyway now um what what's uh happening in in that that kind of um in in the way that like you know de- design functions and like design and advertising specifically uh is kind of interested in like you know uh, really quantifying things to the uh you know uh, molecular or like the uh, organ level in fact um so uh, an example of this that i encountered recently was like a friend of his uh, describing how um you know they are getting data from uh, people like you know i mean sort of focus groups uh for who are looking at advertising advertisements and uh, recording their the how, how long their eyes kind of like stay on the image uh and like you know how because uh, your eye kind of you know sort of moves that way right like i mean uh, uh, like when you're kind of like looking at and how long does it stay in your field of view and things like that and how how and it's so it's quantifying things on an organ level and this has got nothing to do with who you are like you know um this is scary because like the individual is reduced to just that eye movement on one side uh in a scarier kind of like well i wouldn't call it scary but like another kind of conception of this is let's just look at the um i won't take too much time about this but like let's take the pegasus uh, sort of expose that happened right now uh, in pegasus like you can essentially with pegasus you could kind of implant um uh, like you know evidence into people's phones or into their laptops or that right and um, so and and then use that to kind of create a case put them on trial etc etc at this point you don't even need a, a you know a dissident to the state anymore right like because you can conjure one you can conjure a, a an individual who is uh, standing against the state like the state has no like i mean with surveillance capitalism or things like that like you still needed the individual to give you provide you data right like in in the advertising case for example you still need the eye to move but like with pegasus you don't really need an individual at all it just need someone's phone somewhere you know just a phone needs to exist as a sort of um sort of relay point essentially you know uh there's no space for the individual over here like you know and this is like the kind of nadir that uh this quantification kind of leads us to where like you don't really you can atomize the individual entirely to the point that like it doesn't exist like you know where, like each thing uh, each aspect of their life has been like and quantified and reduced to like atoms and it's gone like you know the now in in uh, response to that when you kind of like you know uh i would say uh uh your your playful kind of approach has a uh, chance and like kind of you know luck built into it but it requires the individual to play into that space you know uh and and that's what we need like that's the uh th- that's really beautiful like you know we really kind of like uh yeah it's the most beautiful thing i heard today morning so it's quite nice so i'm, I'm 
filling me with joy. <laughs> I like to the way that both of you have spoken about the interaction between technology and the physical. It plays out obviously very um, much in the museum experience and navigating how people are working and living and, and thinking about um, collections, but also, of course, the hedge in your, your practice. I mean, in the, in the pre-COVID times, probably primarily, um, but perhaps um, both of you could speak a little bit about navigating that, you know, for want of a better word, hybrid experience of, of the digital and the, and the physical. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, back, if we go back to pre-smart, smart, smartphone times, the sort of sense that there was a hybrid didn't really exist until the smart, smart, smartphone really came, came about and really took the, the sense of place out of the internet. Uh, you know, I still remember, you know, there was a computer at home, you would log, log on to the internet through and it was a place, you know, it was, and, and all the metaphors we, we use were about place. And then when the smart, smartphone comes around, particularly probably from 2010 onwards, the sort of it, it becomes very diff, different and all uh, pervasive and all of those tech technologies that Hedge was talk, talking about that track and atomize your, your identity and also um, zoom out and make, make you part of other um, um, co uh, cohorts of similar or diff, diff, uh, different identities. That all becomes possible very, very fast. And I think that the thing that the thing that was sort of lost was this sort of sense of the you know data you know data you know data literacy and all those other te technical lit literacies could never keep up with that pace and now with this sort of hybrid model we've been living in that hy hy hybrid space for you know a decade a decade plus now um, yet we don't quite understand. Um, uh, you know, where those borders are or how sort of porous they are now. And I think they bleed into our lives in ways we don't know and don't expect. I think the Pegasus example is really interesting because that is, you know, things being pushed into your space when they're not actually in your space. Um, and that sort of sense of self that, that you know, the connection of your, your bodily self to the tools like the smart smartphone become very blurred too. But, you know, I think pandemic has, you know, everybody talks about the hybrid museum. We talk about a multi-platform museum now at work. And, you know, yet we, we're still, you know, we, we've launched a thing called Gallery 5, which is for net art and digital art. We have a Cinema 3. We have two physical cinemas. We have Cinema 3, which is our streaming service. Um, they're still trying to find their, their place, for want of a better word, that, that I think... The other thing that happens, of course, is that te technology, um, particularly in the last 20 years, is, you know, the first mover advantage is very strong and they, they seem to be winner-takes-all markets still. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I think we're all trying to resist that. And I think small, you know, we, we, you know, we, we talk about our stuff as content, yet... We wouldn't do that if we were talk, talking about putting works of art in a public space. It was not content, it's an artwork. But once it moves onto a digital plat platform, it's content because it floats, um, floats amongst all these other things. Um, so I think we've got to sort of find new ways of describing the work we do. Um, um, 
And that's a rambling answer, but maybe, yeah, I, you're not really sure where I'm going with that. So, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, I guess, I guess we are kind of like, um, um, sort of figuring the entire thing out as we go along, right? Like, you know, uh, um, it, it's been an adventure, honestly, like, you know, um, if I can uh, make a video game kind of like plug, which I think everyone should play, <laughs> if, if I mean, if you have a system to run it. Uh, in 2019, uh, this Japanese game designer who's like this genius uh, comes up with these crazy surreal video games called, uh, I, like, you know, I mean, for the longest time, he sort of redefined genres and things like that. And it, it's the closest thing I have encountered to a proper postmodern uh, work of art is his games. Like, you know, so this guy called Hideo Kojima. And, uh, you know, so um, he, like, in 2017, 18, started his own, like, a game studio and then uh, made this game called Death Stranding and uh, Death Stranding actually just like literally predicts like the world that we're living in right now you know it's this kind of um, and it's it's amazing because it's also like extremely like a boring game the, the, the idea is like you have to move parcels from one place to the other but like also kind of reconnect America which is broken and like you know everything's kind of like a really uh, I mean some of the metaphors are like on the nose, like, you know, they're, they're sort of communication devices or handcuffs and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, it's this really beautiful kind of game about uh, just, you know, making connections. Uh, and um, like, that for me kind of like really uh, became like, you know, okay, uh, even though we're in this place, like where, you know, we're going to be disconnected from the world uh, and from from friends, from people we love um, in this weird way, we're still going to be able to uh, connect and communicate and in in really kind of like, you know, I mean, mushy and cheesy ways, like, you know, uh, irrespective because like speaking and connecting is so ingrained and so human that, uh, that it, it, it kind of defines us, like, you know, uh, so we will kind of find a way in like, in really strange ways, uh, I don't know how best to describe it, but yeah, that, that was kind of like my, I feel like, you know, that, that one game is actually like a triumph of the entire, like, ordeal. Uh, like, you know, it's like the one, okay, this, this work of art came out of this entire thing. It's, it's quite cool. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, but yeah, like, I mean, rather than that, uh, like, I do think that it, it's, 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 it, it's, you know, you're still figuring out, like, you know, how, how, uh, what kind of a risk can you take for example uh, so a couple of friends and I we uh, set up a studio like right in the middle of the second lockdown uh, <laughs> which was like you know I, I still don't know how we kind of put it together but it's it's standing like you know and, uh, I, yeah like it, it's actually uh, like my oldest friends like you know from like way back from school and it all kind of we'd gone our separate ways and then like we met and decided to set this thing up uh, and it's called Jadugar, the uh, the house of magic. Uh, in, interestingly, Jadugar was actually the name given to museums like in the uh, colonial era as well. Like you know, there was these cabinet of curiosities. So uh, so anyway, so like we somehow made this space, and then like now we are inviting people for like film screenings and like you know doing talks and like you know just. Uh, hanging out uh, and uh, and you're also being able to kind of work over there in like really strange ways like you know so uh, so it's it, 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 
I mean, uh, the thing is that like um, you're you're constantly kind of like navigating uh, as you move forward. And I, I mean, honestly, I feel that that's this is kind of going to be the normal. Like you know, I mean, this is even if Corona goes away, um, the the scary prospect is that like you know, this is just the first of many other sort of pandemics to unfold. Um, I, I, well, not it's not even the first. Like you know, it has unfolded in other parts of the world, um, and. Uh, yeah, and like, you know, we're, we're sort of living on the brink of like climate catastrophe. Uh, so, uh, like, I mean, if, if this is the extinction game, then let's uh, play to the fullest, I would say. Like, you know, I mean, that that's my approach at least. Like, uh, I mean, obviously, the huge changes in terms of studio and, and um, approaches, uh, no, no traveling. But has the um, this period of time changed the way you work and are making work the kinds of work you're making as well Sahesh? yeah uh, well like you know i mean i uh, like for the longest time like you know when i was actually like uh sort of scared of the pandemic you know it like more than i am right now like now it's sort of like an assessed risk order uh i was like basically i just hold myself in like my old studio uh and i was just working on my computer like you know i was just making these ai programs and like a couple of drawings and things like that um and yeah, like slowly that kind of like, you know, you start getting used to the fact that like, okay, you know, you kind of take one step out, things like that. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's like my practice has majorly shifted to being digital in the last like two years. Um, but now with this studio space, I've been able to like kind of get my hands on a little bit of clay and <laughs> start playing with things again. So. And Seb, um, relaunching a museum um, in the middle of the pandemic, what kinds of considerations were you going going through? Um, I might just go back first to Sir, Sir Hedge's point about Kojima's game. I think what was really fascinating about that game, and I think this is something that perhaps connects that to the work with the pen and now the, the uh, lens, is, is the real physicality of that game. You know, when you're climbing up that mountain that you've got to go up for literally hours and hours of game time, uh, before you know, before you build the quicker means of traversing the land landscape, there's a real physicality to it, and um, I, th I thought it was really interesting that, that that a game that was so so beautiful beautiful graphically also had that real sense of um, physicality physicality to it, and and um, that sense of physical strain. You know, you you're, you're actually feeling your character Sam. Uh, going up those mountains and going across those streams. And it wasn't, you know, it was almost more, um, more physical than some of those other games that are explicitly physical, like, you know, things, the fitness games and things like that. I thought it was, it was really fascinating. I think, you know, that, that sort of sense of multi-sensoriness was really interesting. And I, I don't know many other games that cap capture that. And I think, that, that game, it's really interesting you bring it up because it is one of those games that, you know, does feel more like an art exhibition piece than anything else, but it is also an immense, I'm immensely part of the discourse around AAA video games. I mean, it's it's like Hollywood scale production and and credits to uh, match, you know, those credits go on for about 20 minutes at the end, at the end of it all. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but anyway, yeah, so, Opening the museum, you know, I think it was interesting coming, you know, we'd, we'd, ob we'd obviously never planned to open as late as we did and uh, certainly been closed 
you know, mid, mid, midway through lockdown two, I think we, you know, realized that this, this was going to go on for much long, longer than um, uh, was initially thought. Um, and we started to, you know, we launched the new uh, brand and all these new digital initiatives. So Cinema 3 um, and a remake of the exhibition's themes, I guess, on uh, the website as a sort of series of narrative essays with interactive elements to them and things like that. Um, launching a museum in this sort of time, you know, I think is about, you know, also asserting the value of the museum as a physical convening place and then saying that that's not the end of it. You know, I think that's that's really for me what has been really, you know, I think um, progressive for the field is that it's it's actually pushed museums to reconceive of their uh, purpose as both ideas, collections, and con and con and con um, and convening spaces, and and that sort of um, and and what what I would hope is that sense, I guess, that I was getting at in what I was saying, you know, in talking through the work, is that sort of sense of impacting people across time. I, th I think that was really one of the things that that pre-COVID museums were quite complacent about. We often saw the internet as a thing about reach, but it was never about time. It was never about people spending more time with works or coming back to works or even commissioning new types of works that bridge the physical spaces of the galleries and the spaces in people's lives or places or the spaces in people's communities. And I think that's a that, that opens up a really um, you know important uh, piece around the relevance of museums, particularly particularly as we move into uh, the, you know, addressing the climate crisis that will dominate the rest of, um, of the century. You know, I think the pan, the pan, the, you know, COVID's been almost a test run for can, can, can we collab, uh, collab, um, collaborate at scale to solve globe, you know, global problems? And the, the reality is we, we're probably pretty bad at it actually. And, um, we need all the all the all the institutions we have and creative people we have to find ways to build collaborations across both physical spaces and across borders and time because these issues are not easily solved solvable nothing nothing ever is um, yeah so I think I, I think it's sort of um, I'm hopeful that the sort of multi-platformness will will also be that sense of the museum becoming a platform for communities and for discussions. I think we've been through a, through a period where galleries really shifted to being places for artists, which was great, but they really need to be a place for dialogue between artists and, and communities and be places that realize that they have a power, they have a power relationship with both artists and communities and not sort of put them, not see themselves as new, new, neutral spaces, but use their power to, con to, con to convene things in um, valuable ways. Absolutely. Yep, I feel like that needs to be printed on a T-shirt for sure. That's incredible. Um, Sahaj, um, you spoke about AI and your use of AI. And this morning I got um, a survey to fill out about how museums use AI and is our museum using AI. Um, Seb, uh, you know, what, what's your, what's your what museum's position or your position on AI in museums? 
Oh, it's funny. Um, you know, even back at that early powerhouse um, uh, work that I was showing, you know, in 2005, six, we were using uh, what wasn't call, called, called AI then, but we um, were using text mining tools to uh, build uh, semantic maps uh, across the language used by curators in writing des descriptions of collections. Um, and then, ob then obviously through the work at the Cooper Hewitt, we were look looking at ways to al algorithmically connect things and learn things. Um, and during, during, during that period too, you know, there, there was all that work that MIT was doing about emotion detection and, you know, it, it's subsequently been shown to be on pretty thin, on pretty thin ground, um, plus all the bias, biases that are obvious to anybody that, that spends 20 minutes in the space doing things. Um, you know, I think it's been interesting to see how AI has become um, a buzzword for, you know, really what is statistics and at one kind of level, but I think there's really in, in, interesting work going on at the generative level. And I think there's been really great work that artists have been doing and make, making that are sort of poking at the ed, edges and trying to, you know, I, I remember, I remember, I remember in my other life as a music, music person when uh, there was a German uh, musician who was making music out of uh, skipping CDs. So Marcus Marcus Pop and his uh, work disc disc discount. I think in 1994. Anyway, it was the sound of skipping CDs, and it was sort of the birth of sort of I guess glitch in terms of music, um, and that sort of sense of AI now being used. You know, artists working with AI to sort of poke at the poke at um, poke at the edges and to and to and to reveal the glitches and the um, uh, removing the opacity of the algorithm. And I think in our communities is, you know, our, our technical literacy is, is generally very poor. Um, these, these sort of things are often seen as magic, but they're not magic at all. They're, they're you know, math, mathematics and, um, um, very, and can be very, very, very reductive. You know, I mean, I get, I will get an email every week at least of some new startup wanting to, run predictive methods across our user data or whatever, or across, you know, predict how, how many people will do this. Uh, sure, but, you know, um, there's a whole lot of privacy concerns in that too. But also, you know, I, I think it's more interesting to see where, where these things begin to break, break kind of down so our communities can resist that, quant that quantifying urge and that, that you know, almost programmatic urge to program our societies to engineer them into some fric frictionless future. Sounds pretty grim, really. Um, that's 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 why I really like you know what the work that Sah that Sahedge and others are doing because they're sort of messing with that and 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 they're messing and revealing it. And I think that's you know there, there's not enough spaces for discussions that are playful around. Um, around that sort of dirt or grit, the grit in the machine, the dirt in the machine, the things that fritz out are what interests me, I guess. That's so true. Um, and, and that sort of resisting the, the just this sort of expose, but making it very complex. I think it's it's so beautiful in your work, Sahaj. 
Um, I, I did pick up that you talked about, um, you know, that sort of sense of is it a collaborator, is it a, uh, a tool, you know, that, that tension there. I mean, obviously we've had the case um, just recently about, you know, trying to get a, a, an AI on the patent list as a, as a creator. Um, love to hear your thoughts on, on that, uh, that sense and the way that you work with AI too. Um, yeah, like uh, I, I think the, um, you know, the one idea kind of that's been uh, sort of driving me to kind of collaborate with AI in that way is, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, encountering Reza Negaristani's work, like, you know, so uh, he kind of wrote this uh, uh, fantastic book that I'm still kind of like, you know, wading through uh, called uh, Intelligence and Spirit, uh, where, you know, he's basically kind of like to reduce his argument a bit, like, you know, uh, saying that like AI uh, and uh, AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence, will um, or is already kind of giving us this outside view to our own kind of view of the mind, you know. So it kind of just like expands the the philosophy of mind, uh, and to the point that like you know we have this like kind of model that we can create, and like we can kind of, um, <clears throat> and this is kind of like largely unprecedented in that sense, you know, uh, this, this is not existent. We haven't had things that can think. Um, beyond that, like, you know, I mean, there's, there's work by uh, Ian Cheng, who uh, is like absolutely fantastic. Like, you know, when I, I, I sort of encountered his work in 2016 and I was like, you know, I mean, if, uh, art history is this game. This guy just broke it. Like, you know, he broke the game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, what happens after this? <laughs> um, but also, uh, K. Alado uh, McDowell's uh, book, um, which, uh, you know, recently, I mean, I've only had a chance to read parts of it, uh, uh, called uh, Pharmaco AI, which he's kind of written, uh, they've written with, uh, I think, GTP3. Uh, it's sort of in collaboration with, um, like, AI, you know, and, and I think, and you'll see more of these gestures coming up, like, even more, you know, uh, this, this idea of, like, kind of treating this, uh, these non-human forms as uh, potential collaborators in uh, kind of in the way that uh, we move forward um, and and yeah it's exciting you know like in the sense that uh, there's this resistance to it like you know as well where uh, people think that like oh wait like you know I mean, does that mean that like we don't need artists anymore that that's never going to be the case you know I mean painting it paintings never going to die don't worry <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, but at the same time or it's going to keep dying uh, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, like you know, you it, it, like this is just another tool. Like you know, I mean, the paintbrush is another is a tool as well. Like you know, and the pencil is a tool as well. And it's just like we've got we've just got more tools to play with. That's all. Uh, so I mean, I, I just feel that that resistance to uh, to technology or even kind of like you know that whole idea of like you know art and technology. Like art is technology. Like actually, I'm. This is not something that I'm saying, like Holly Hendon said this, like, you know, like art is technology, you know, and I was saying, yeah, of course, you know, that that's what it is. Uh, it, it kind of gives us these kind of like pathways into like, you know, uh, into the world, into kind of like reassessing things. Uh, so, yeah, like, you know, I mean, why not have more toys to play with? Uh, so that that's that's my approach. And I think like, I mean, I, I kind of have an affinity to people who are kind of like drawn towards that. Like, so, um, yeah, and so many of the tools now have AI just built into them. I mean, you know, I mean, kids who are coming into the museum to learn 
you know, I mean, anything on the Adobe suite or any other photo or uh, video manipulation tools, all of these um, things have those enhancements. They're just not necessarily any more called out as AI. They're just part of how things work. Um, it's really interesting. The GPT-3 stuff for writing is amazing. You know, I think there's, there's really, you know, it'd be fascinating to have museum labels generated by GPT-3. They might even be a little more readable. Um, could be quite interesting, at least playful. Noted. Doing that for the next show, obviously. <laughs> um, Seb, uh, you wrote late last year um, that obviously tech um, technology in the sector, um, the visual art sector is really different to a decade ago and, of course, really different again to two decades ago. I wondered if we might wrap up um, for both of you what kind of advice you might have had for your um, yourselves and the sector uh, a decade ago um, and, and what kind of advice you might give to, to the current generation. Um, I think, you know, a decade ago I was optimistic about um, where uh, mass scale tools could take uh, things. I, 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 you know, I'd grown up with the internet in the in uh, the nineteen nineties and had seen a utopian promise in that, uh, which had stuck around. And I think uh, by the early twenty tens, particularly working in New in uh, uh, um, New York at the time of the Snowden the Snowden revelations and the NSA, um, that really for me was a massive turning 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 point around the, ut the utopian promise is gone and now it is trying to find ways of um, uh, find ways to bring technologies into a greater dialogue I guess more, more of kind of my work is about building te technological liter literacies and seeing those as ongoing pieces of work it's a language that evolved language you know languages that evolve very very fast it's not like you know learning Chinese and Chinese stays static and you can probably get a certificate that's sort of how I think people have approached te technical literacies in the past but this is more like learning slang it evolves at the speed of slang and you need to find ways to think about that and think about uh, build ways of thinking about technology as a non sort of neutral and also now of course with plat platform the plat the, the platform ec economics have come to such a a global scale that um, it's impossible to uh, uh, talk about tech technology without also look looking at how and who is making money from the technologies themselves or from the data and from the users of that tech, tech uh, technology. And I think um, that's one of the things that, um, you know, is a real tension in, I guess, the work that I do now with uh, museums and libraries and galleries and, and others is, is, is trying to um, bring, a com bring, com bring complexity in how we think about Tech technology, and as, uh, and, and, and as uh, Hedge was saying, quoting Holly, I mean, yeah, art is tech. Technology, technology is also part of our society in in in, in deep um, ways, in ways that perhaps we don't understand quite at a macro level how deep those 
interrelations are. And I think that's, that's part of the challenge. And I, I don't know, you know, we, we seem to be frag, 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 fragmenting as societies at a time when to, a, to, a, to address some of those issues needs us to come uh, together in, in perhaps loose, loose, loose coalitions or decentralized organizations. I don't know, you know, there's, there's this sort of ways that we need to find alliances um, in order to um, address some of the critical issues that are coming out. Um, that we need to use technology well in order to do so. Um, but in order to do that, we need to also realize where and what we're, con we're, con we're contributing to through, through that process. And that's why we need more artists in this space, poking at this, revealing things, showing us things that you know, only they can see um, and giving us also these physical experiences of purely digital things. I think that's the other really interesting piece with Sir Hedge's work and other artists too, who are working both in a digital space and with material, physical materials, the materiality of you know, net networks, the cloud, these are all physical things. They're made with rare earth, you know, rare earth metals and all this sort of stuff. They are physical. There is a material layer to all this tech, uh, which we also often don't um, see. And we're also often purposely abstracted for us. So uh, we don't call into question the politics of them. I'm so glad I'm on mute because I'm like, mm, yeah, here, here to everything you're saying. But Sahaj, um, same to you. What what kind of advice might you have given yourself ten years ago and to each artist of the future? Play more video games. <laughs> it's like, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> just that. <laughs> or do you mean uh, in the past or in the future? Yeah, both. So, um, if, if ten years ago, what what you, what might you have said to yourself, knowing what you know now, and Knowing what you know now, what what advice would you give to artists of the future? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I guess both ways. Like you know, just play more video games. <laughs> I think, it's, yeah, like I, I mean, yeah, that that's kind of what like I'd like to do as well. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, but also, yeah, like I mean, hey, honestly, I think I think uh, we're kind of seeing that already. Like you know, I mean. Um, like unfolding already, like you know that those worlds are converging. So uh, I mean, you know, in really interesting ways where uh, it's it's not that uh, clean kind of like normative sort of you know uh, uh, you know the digital just like kind of sitting onto or like kind of or, or like you know arriving as this all encompassing thing. There's uh, there's all these like kind of uh, strange kind of things that happen right like in the in the gaps uh uh kind of like like in futurama for example like you know that that was kind of like why that that show was so fantastic as well right like because it was like okay it's set in the future but at the same time like you know everything's kind of falling apart like you know and that that's kind of where we are right now like i mean uh william gibson says that like you know the, the future is already here it's just like unevenly placed and uh and you're kind of like experiencing these, these kind of you're moving through those timelines constantly uh so yeah that that's kind of where we are and like i mean i guess i guess like uh i mean as uh 
like i think i i mean there's no advice like i mean i i don't know so like you know i mean i i would ask for advice more than anything else but like uh if i had to give any advice to myself like 10 years back i'd, I'd just tell myself to like you know play more video games oh <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> Fantastic. Look, thank you so much, both of you. Um, such wisdom, such uh, humour, which we all need um, both of in abundance at the moment. Um, I really just wanted to say thank you so much for your time and your consideration. Um, it's, it's been great. Thank you.